Something is coming. Something hungry for blood. A shadow grows on the wall behind you, swallowing you in darkness. It is almost here. I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. That is, uh, that is from the opening uh, of Stranger Things when the kids are playing Dungeons and Dragons. And Mike, Mike is the game master or the dungeon master mm. and he that's something he's he's setting the stage for their D mm. game so we're doing it today huh we're doing the stranger things episode today we can't wait can't hold it any longer no i think we should do it okay. while it's fresh in our minds okay i like that idea while it's fresh in our minds even though well season four is fresh in our minds <laughs> oh the, it's all fresh in my mind that's true you, yeah, you, you just barely went through the whole thing um Okay, spoiler alert. Should we say that three times? Spoiler alert. Yeah. We'd like to interrupt the Mind Virus podcast for an emergency broadcast message. The following <laughs> podcast will contain spoilers for seasons one, two, three, four, and possibly five, which has not yet been released or produced, <laughs> right. of Stranger Things, the television series about the kids in the 80s that end up fighting evil. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, pause now, go watch it. Okay, you watched it. Great. Now you can continue. Okay, so those of you that just paused, that was a lot of work. That's like a a yeah. marathon type of a thing for me. I mean, I watched it over what 3 weeks or something like that. And they started getting longer and longer in season 3 and 4. Which is great. I thought it was entertaining. But binge watching can be a very difficult thing. A lot of work, you know? Oh, man. It is. How do you know how much popcorn to have or how much soda? Or should you get popsicles or donuts? Or well, you, you know, try to do it without any treats? It's great because at my house we have this newfangled thing. Um, it's on demand. You can pause the TV. Oh, yeah. I've heard about that. Yeah. And actually, we don't even have any commercials. Yeah. And um, so you can pause it and go downstairs or wherever and find a snack. That, that, that's, Come back. That works really well. Yeah. Can you imagine somebody in a movie theater try to do that? They like stand up. They're like, hey, oh, hold on. Can we pause? I got to pee real bad. <laughs> I, don't uh, think, I, don't I could imagine that. That'd be a good movie. Good, yeah. Good uh, scene, in a, scene movie. in a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some some shows like we talked about Maverick a little bit last week, I think, didn't we? Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, I think we mentioned it. You, we were talking about the state of movies. I think you had recommended it. Like a movie like that's great to see in a theater. I only have heard good things about Top Gun Maverick from friends, and they have all essentially said the same thing. It's a great story of redemption, a great movie movie that you're not going to get any politics in it. You're just going to have a great fun movie. Yeah. And it's great in the theater. 
Stranger Things, on the other hand, is perfectly fine on a TV screen or even an iPad. It's perfect in the middle of the night. Right. On Thursday. Staying up too late. <laughs> Wednesday night. <clears throat> Thursday night. Friday night. Saturday night. <laughs> But uh, yeah, they uh, Mike sets the stage, right? Something is coming. Yeah, Something so hungry for blood. We have talked about Dungeons and Dragons before. Now, did you know, Bobby Flood, that there is on Netflix a Stranger Things like cast uh, commentary program? Beyond, I think it's called Beyond Stranger Things. I have heard of that. I I don't remember if I watched it. I don't think I did. I've watched the first episode of that while I was waiting for my wife to join me or watch part of it. It's just a kind of a commentary on the from the standpoint of the director and the two writers, the Duffler brothers. And um, the first episode has the actress, uh, I think her name is Millie Bobby Brown, and the guy, uh, the, the boy, so she plays Eleven, or L, and then her boyfriend, or you know, her significant. Other, this is your this is your Adam and Eve pair in the movie, uh, I think, or one of the. You get uh, Flynn Wolfhard. Is that his name? Wolf Wolfenstein. What's the kid's name? He plays Michael. I don't know any of the kids' real names. Flynn Wolfhard. I got it right. You've got wait, uh, hey, wait, hold on. His last name is Wolfhart. Wolfhard, okay. like a hard wolf. Like he's okay. a hard wolf. This fella. Wolfhart would have been an interesting kind of serendipity there, with the role he plays in the in this in the show. Like the Mike character mm-hmm. becomes kind of this brave, stout-hearted. Yeah, he's supposed to be the. Armor. He's supposed to be kind of the heart of the group or the center of the group right of the kids of course but he it starts off with him being the dm now tell us about for those of you that are uninformed bobby's going to just give us a quick rundown on D because D or dungeons and dragons factors heavily into stranger things and we've talked a little D before here on the mind virus show but if you're not into it <clears throat> you're not going to get the uh, depth of Dungeons and Dragons references in the Stranger Things. And if you haven't ever played it, I, 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 th- I think if you've played D&D or have seen kids play D&D, which I have seen a lot of kids playing D&D lately because my kids have been playing it, um, you're not going to understand some of the stuff that goes on in Stranger Things. Like It, it takes on a, a different flavor here if you know about the game Dungeons and Dragons. Bobby, tell us about it. Well, the basics, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons is a game. Okay, let me tell you about it. (laughs) And Uh, No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. It's, I mean, I'd have to look up when when it, you know. You talk, I'll look up. It's origins, but the current edition is a fifth fifth edition. And what this means is that there are rules, uh, rules editions. First published in 1974, originally designed by a guy named Gary Gigax, G-Y-G-A-X, Jugax, I'm not sure how you would, and another guy named Dave Arneson. It's a tabletop role-playing game. Um, It's probably the first role-playing game, isn't it? Do you know of any older role-playing games? 
Um, probably not to this scale. I mean, the rules are very in-depth. Um, and it, think about Lord of the Rings, okay? Lord of the Rings, the books, right? Not the movies. Uh, those were written in the 50s. And the basic premise, the basic structure of Lord of the Rings is a group of adventurers set out on a quest. And each member of that party, right, the Fellowship of the Ring, each member of the Fellowship or the party has a certain role. Okay, you've got Gandalf. He's the wizard and the brains. You've got the hobbits. They're kind of the heart and they're, they're you know, central to the quest. Then you've got the different warriors, you know, Legolas with his ranged damage, his bow. You got Gimli with his axe, Boromir with his sword. And then there's people that help him along the way. That basic structure has, I think, is sort of created in Lord of the Rings and has become kind of the foundation for games like Dungeons and Dragons. All kinds of video games are based on that idea so dungeons and dragons is a is a game played on a tabletop just like this one with paper and pens and dice so you have you can create a character you can be you can be jordan bruno the brave and you can be a you you, maybe jordan bruno the brave is a human wizard and then he's got stats like intelligence and constitution and spirit uh, intelligence 100 million constitution 102 well, you, million you have to level can you roll those, a d20 you have to that? Le- you have to level those things up well i have of course leveled that up <laughs> dramatically and you can create these characters and people will create these these characters these avatars these personas and they will carry them from game to game often if the dungeon master allows it there's a scene in uh, this recent series, Stranger Things, the fourth se- uh, season, and Lucas's little sister, I can't remember her name now, but she's the feisty little girl, and she brings, uh, they, need a, they need a player for a D&D game, right? The team, the, the D&D club, and they find her, and she, she brings a pre-made character that she's already leveled up and played with in the past anyway uh D got pretty popular it's, it's always been kind of a stereotypically like nerd or geek game. her name's erica by the way that's right erica and um yeah it's it's a game for kind of, kind of like stranger things kind of portrays it's you know the jocks the football kids the letterman jacket kids aren't the ones necessarily playing D D. Yeah, I'll, I'll link to a couple of wiki articles on D&D and the history of role-playing games. Uh, one, one note here is that in the late 60s to early 70s, um, it looks like D&D was one of the very first, and uh, these guys, Gary and um, Dave, were heavily involved in that in the development of that genre of games, I guess. But they relate... They want to. They want to relate this. They don't. They don't mention Lord of the Rings in the history of role playing games, which I find to be probably a failure on um, on the part of Wikipedia. Here, they want to link role playing war games um, to to the development of. And I'm sure there's plenty games. of different, um, you know, inspirations and 
yeah inputs but that whole idea of like this party based quest i i think originated or at least was really popularized with the lord of the rings book series i think so yeah they want to link it to like these napoleonic wargaming scenarios or the people... hobbit did the the hobbit was written before lord of the rings right um the hobbit was the hobbit written pre world war 2 i know world war 2 kind of interrupted Tolkien's writing career. And Lord of the Rings was afterward. Was Hobbit? Let's see. I think that The Hobbit might have been... I think he wrote The Hobbit first. Let's see. We've got the wiki article up here. While, while Jordan's efforting on that... 1936... The okay, Hobbit, yeah. Lord of the Rings, 54 to 55. Right. So The Hobbit was first. So The Hobbit maybe is more of that original, because that's the same type of idea, right? They have this party-based adventure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, you get, Lord of the Rings is kind of that way, too. But the, I wanted to make the point that the wiki article here, although it mentions these early uh, war games in the 18 and 1900s, uh, it says, quote, it actually bore, talking about the games coming out of the 70s, actually bore a greater resemblance to LARPing games. LAR- LARP meaning live action role playing. And if you've ever right. seen uh, people doing that, what they call it the Society for Creative Anachronism, and they'll, if you'll drive past a park and you've got a bunch of people right. that are dressed up and they're out. <coughs> Then that's a big thing. Have you have you ever done any LARPing, Mister Flood? Not intentionally. I, uh, <laughs> I. It's easy to kind of mock or make fun of the the traditional LARPers with their wooden swords or their foam swords and their fake magic. I've known some people that have done that, and they spend a lot of time on they costumes, do. and then they they have groups of friends, and they they maintain like uh, what we've talked about a little bit. To some extent, kayfabe. Right. They maintain sort of a persona. They that like, or at least they're they've got a a role to play in the LARP, and right. those roles don't change. Like the king stays the king, and the jester is always the jester. Right. And and it, like I was saying, it's easy to kind of make fun of it, but I think we all LARP in our own ways. Uh, you know, and, and we did when we were kids. At y- least you're a triathlete. You're LARPing. If you're involved in the American dollar economy, you're LARPing right now. <laughs> right. And you're about to see what the scenario, how the scenario ends. Right. Yeah. So I, 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 think, uh, I think all that stuff is, is fun. I think over the last, say, 20 years, the, the role play, role-playing games have moved from the realm of the nerds and the social rejects and the geeks into the mainstream. And part of that, I, I think there's two major reasons for that. The first one is the development of computer games and games like EverQuest, World of Warcraft, which borrow from the D&D mindset, you know, where everything behind the scenes is a, is a roll of the dice, right? Maybe you have a 25% critical hit chance on your orc warrior that you play in World of Warcraft. Mm -hmm. And behind the scenes, the code is taking all of these things into account. It's made it a lot easier. Crit chance, your uh, dodge chance, you know, your hit rate, whatever you want to 
you know, whatever stats there are. But it, so the video games have sort of removed the nerdiness and the detail orientedness out of this. So you're not, and giving you visuals, right? It's a lot cooler to play a video game than it is to play one with your words and your imagination on a table. Well, I don't know if I agree with that. Uh, well, no, I'm saying for the mainstream. Yes. Saying okay, that. there I agree with you. The other reason I think... Because we always agree on the Mind Virus show. <laughs> the, the other reason I think that they've moved into the mainstream is that these nerds and geeks that grew up playing these games in the 70s and 80s now run the world. Yeah. And so yeah, it's yeah. like the things we like yeah, they're computer are the things guys. everybody's going to like. <laughs> and they're the guys who made the computers and the software. And But d and I've dabbled in it. We've had some fun with it with some friends. It's super fun. It can be it can be really fun, especially if everybody is on the same page. If 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 everybody's taking it seriously, it really works. If everybody's just kind of goofing around, that works too. As long as one person in the group isn't like, "Come on, guys, we gotta stick to the rules." <laughs> so, but I, I recommend everybody play D and D or some version of it. Right? There's other spinoffs and and things that are like it nowadays well, around a table i'm not talking computer games i'm talking about around yeah. a table with friends we've mentioned critical role the the voice actors that have yep. a real popular uh youtube channel they stream on twitch and stuff go watch them okay so i think before we kind of move past the dungeons and dragons role-playing game conversation and i love that we're starting out i love that we're starting out here with the from the beginning of time discussion <laughs> on stranger things this is Isn't great that, this is right up my alley it was like our very first episode we're like what's going on in the world today we're like well let's go back to the 1600s yeah, let's go way back it starts with adam and actually cain and abel this is a secret combination um i, I like that we're starting here what I wanted to bring up on the D&D discussion is that it looks to me like the entire Dungeons and Dragons tabletop get together with a group of friends experience is highly dependent on the quality of your dungeon master. Absolutely. And the type of preparation that person is willing to put in and their skills as a storyteller. Yeah, the the dungeon master or the game master can make or break a D&D session uh, because they're, they're the game master. They determine, you might say something like, you know, you might say something like, can I, can I roll for clarity? And they might say, sure, roll for clarity. And, and maybe clarity is being able to see the situation differently or perception or... But, they but then can, they just invent some new tidbit on the spot, like you roll for clarity. Okay, you you notice that the man has uh, blood dripping down his left arm, right? And or a lot of these, and you can find like pre-written campaigns, but a lot of these, a lot of the best ones are written by the game master. Hmm. You know, they create them within the universe, and you can get these books, right? These Dungeons and Dragons rules books and editions that will give you prompts and. There's different settings. You know, the D&D universe has an entire world called the uh, Sword Coast, I want to say. And it's this whole world where you can set these campaigns in. And there's different monsters. Well, I've seen the books. Like, they're kind of expensive. Well, yeah, I guess they are. 
Maybe they're not they that expensive. Be. Everything's kind of expensive these days. It can be, but you can find but, you but can find chock, free ones. They're like chock full of monsters. Like they tell you about mon- certain monsters, and then gives you like backstory on it, right? Do they give you the statistics on each monster, like the the constitution, intelligence, dexterity, uh, whatever? I don't know what the... Sometimes, yeah, like for bosses, but for maybe for regular monsters, it'll be like, oh, this is a goblin. They have 10 hit points, and they're susceptible to ice damage or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if look, guys out there, I just made that up on the spot. I don't know if goblins are susceptible to ice damage. You don't need a fact check. You're not a qualified DM. Have you ever, Bobby, have you ever been the DM? I've never been the dungeon master. I think it'd be kind of fun. I, I take that back. I've sort of done it with, uh, with my kids and my, we had the whole fam, even my wife played, not D&D, but a game called, oh man. It's kind of a kid's version like of that sort of genre. And I was the DM for that, if, if you want to. But no, ne- never for a serious D&D-type campaign. Now, I need to look up that game. I'll look it up at behind the scenes. Yeah, here. I don't so want to leave anybody out there my hanging. My son uh, has been uh, preparing. Or he, he has, he's been acting as the dungeon master for a group of friends and relatives that get together every couple of weeks. And... These kids get around the. T- I, I think it's really kind of cool, you know. Other than the fact that that um, in the back of my mind is the whole Satanist scare, <laughs> you know, because I was brought up in the '80s, which is interesting because the the series Stranger Things revolves around that uh, Satanism scare of the '80s, yeah, and how it was related to Dungeons and Dragons. So that's always been in my mind, even though I think when I was a kid we me and some of my friends talked about D&D or maybe tried to get into it or dabbled a little bit even though we had heard we never we never really got a game going but it was like ooh we're going to do something on the fringe here we're going to we're going to talk about D&D and maybe think about getting a game together but it's so evil you know kids are kids are killing themselves they're disappearing from off the face of the earth anyway we that that was on that was part of the the set of cultural scares that little kids or fears or anxieties that little kids or little kids kids from the ages of 5 to 15 16 um were dealing with in the 80s and uh, we definitely had those you know there were plenty of plenty of things that i think were becoming pop pop culture fears when we were growing up uh the halloween candy thing did we talk about the halloween candy stuff here on the episode i, I think, think we, we might did. have yeah the, the, it was always it boils scare. down to like one or two people but but parents everywhere now check their kids candy every halloween to make sure there's no razor blades in it due to one or two people um there was the Dungeons and Dragons scare. Of course, the the drugs. Drugs were a big issue. You know, mm-hmm. don't do drugs. There were, there were there were kids just older than me. I remember there were a lot of. I I knew of a lot of families or people who had a teenager when I was not quite a teenager. When I was ten years old or whatever, that had had a drug problem. Um. Of course, the Russians. 
<laughs> yeah, the Russians, they're, they're always the enemy, right? They're always the scary yeah. out there. Voldemort never dies. <laughs> um, yeah, we're going to get to Harry Potter too soon, which I'm excited for. Although you need to comment and encourage Mr. Flood to read the books because he doesn't want to do it without reading the books. Maybe I'll read the books too. I, I've read we have the some books. Listen- we have some, res- no, I mean, I, I wanna I, read maybe them. I'll read them again. We have some listeners that have read them multiple times. Maybe we can bring in some guests for this deep dive. One of yeah, one of our listeners, uh, the husband of a red vine, mm-hmm. is a is a certified expert on it. He corrects me every time on the podcast that he hears something we've said about Harry Potter that's not correct. I say, hey, I was listening to the podcast, and you know, you said this about Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, technically, <laughs> it'll be fine. You're you're, you're gonna get a, you're gonna, we'll get you through this. We'll get through husband it. Yeah. to a red vine. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah. So, I, I getting back to the kids that I've seen playing this. My my son, who w- wants to be this dungeon master, or is the dungeon master, so I shouldn't say he wants to be, but he spends significant time on it, understanding the, studying the rules, studying the books, and he gets anxiety over this, right? Like, oh, it's like he's it's his job. Like, this, you don't understand, Dad. You don't understand. I've got this all this pressure weighing on me to make this a great experience, and then they. They get down there, and he puts up his little shield board. What right. do you call that? I'm not sure what that's called. A but it, partition, it keep, or the partition keeps the other players from seeing if he has to roll to to yeah. check something, or which is kind of funny that you're gonna. Why not just make it up? Well, that's to make it random, right? It's so that he's not in control of the whole thing. He's just in control of the generalities of the story, and then he yeah. tells the story, and and they sit around the table and they eat food and they put the little figures out they draw a map and they put these little figures out on the table just like in the movie stranger things yeah the 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 scene there where the boys playing the game in mike's basement is perfect it's just perfect of like that's the ultimate kind of idyllic dungeons and dragons game well in the stranger thing beyond stranger things commentary episode that i watched the Duffler brothers get into a little bit of a discussion. Duffler or Duffer? Duffer. I've always, every time I watch an episode and it's like written or created by the Duffer brothers, I always want to look these guys up and learn about no it. L, no L, Duffer, not Duffler. Okay. Thank you for the correction there, Mr. Pronunciator in chief. <laughs> so is it Duffer? Du, I think it's Duffler, yeah. Duffer, not Duffler. <laughs> <laughs> They, it's funny because in the, in this commentary show, the kid, the kids, uh, Flynn and Millie kind of joke about D and D. They're not as into it as the Duffer brothers. You can tell they're, they're a little more, a little less geeky. And they talk about how it's a kid's game. And then the, the Duffer brothers kind of take offense at that. They're like, well, hold on a second. Grown-ups play D&D too, you know? <laughs> it's, so, it's, it's okay. We, you right. know, it's good. And it's kind of funny how they, like, they actually want to defend the game more than you would think was a, appropriate for the commentary. It was like, they're, they're not, like, angry about it, but they go to enough of a length to keep coming back to that, no, it's good that grown-ups, everybody likes D&D, you know? They, 
they go back to it often enough. So you realize that the Duffer brothers are big into D&D and probably enjoy playing a lot. And it does factor heavily into the whole, um, the whole genre, the whole series, excuse me. It does. Um, ultimately, these kids are a party, and they set out on a on this. Explain quest. what that means. What's a party? Uh, a party is a group of uh, adventurers, and there's usually a party leader. Because, as you've explained in past episodes, and we were joking about this, the story tends to begin like this: you, you're in a tavern and sitting down for drinks with your friends. Right. The dwarf, the elf, the hobbit and the it sounds a lot like lord of the rings and the and the prancing pony yeah and there's different ways for parties to come together right sometimes you know especially in video games you 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 know you you start out as an individual oftentimes a kid you're a kid of no uh, regard or importance you're an orphaned farmhand and you wake up one morning it's a regular day in the rolling rural hills of Fantasyville, and you're going about your daily chores when suddenly a horseman rides into the village and he asks, Where is this? Is the part where you name your character, you know, and you're plucked out of this. It's like Luke Skywalker, right? He's he's his regular boring life is interrupted by the stormtroopers killing his aunt and uncle or the hobbit. The Where Hobbit. Well, Gandalf in, shows up in, with all the dwarfs. Yeah, and the Hobbit, he literally just shows up at the door. And uh, Lord of the Rings, Frodo's kind of thrust into things. So it, in a and d campaign, uh, it can be any number of, of ways that that originates. If you look at Stranger Things, here you have kids in the heart of their, their safety zone, right? They're protected in the basement of... Mike's house, right? The safest place in the world. Mike's last name's Wheeler, right? Yeah, I think so. And they're playing the game there. And life's great, right? They're they're what are they, sixth or seventh graders at the you know, the opening of the, the series. And uh life's perfect, right? They're they're good friends, nothing's gonna ever come between them, they don't care about girls. They just care about their D&D campaigns. And what does that make them, 12 or 13? Something like that. And cruising around on bikes. Yeah. Through their little small, sleepy town of Hawkins, Indiana. Yeah. And then uh, it's time to come home. And the friends go their separate ways on a dark night, mm-hmm. riding their bikes. And then their idyllic, life is interrupted that's when will will disappears will Byers disappears so that's the setup for the 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 world of stranger things is that there's this now one more note it's foreshadowed by the very last events in the in the D D episode will has to go home the kids have to break up and there's a there's the big reveal that Mike the dungeon master gives them he he the the party their their party of adventurers runs into the demogorgon right yep it's the final boss for the campaign 
Yeah. And um, so when you say boss, you mean the big monster, the big yeah, a boss. You're using video a, game a, language. Video game. In, well, it's a D, I think it came from D&D maybe, but the boss is the final monster or villain for a level like in, you know, and then there's the final boss. Like if you played Super Mario Brothers as a kid, like the final boss was Bowser, right? You, you de- mm-hmm. defeat Bowser, you save the princess. But each level had bosses. And that's still true in, in video games. Certain types of video games today, you have bosses. And the Demogorgon is the boss. And Will, if I'm remembering right, Will decides to roll, right? The, par- the party has a choice to retreat come back again another day or to roll to try to fight the Demogorgon, right? Right. And uh, the Demogorgon, when Mike lands this on him, he pulls this minifigure out and throws it down on the table and it's this two-headed monster, right? So Demi in Greek meaning half or or um, little uh, and Gorgon meaning gaze or face a look a grim or terrible fierce gaze uh this comes from the greek also the you remember uh medusa mm-hmm. was the the main is the most famous gorgon in um greek mythology it's a female monster with with all the snake hair that turns you to stone and mm-hmm. so it it literally means uh a petrifying look or a, a grim, grim or fierce, terrible face or look. So this is interesting because in the D&D world, it's a, it's a demigorgon, but then they, the actual monster that they encounter doesn't have two heads, but perhaps the, the meaning of the word matters into the symbolism. So we'll get to that later throwing that out there right now but anyway right. as you were saying um <clears throat> mike mike brings the big climax to the table they've got to go and so they decide whether to retreat or fight and i interrupted you right there well yeah they, they just have this choice right and they mm-hmm. choose and, and there's a little bit of pressure on them because i think the parents are up there going you gotta go home and right and will decides to fight he's a wizard and he decides to shoot a fireball or try to shoot a fireball at the demogorgon yeah to destroy it and they roll the dice and the dice gets thrown off the table they can't find it but they're true to their they're they're true to the game and so they want to see what it landed yeah what number it, it landed and if it uh now if you're unaware of how D&D is played, it's played with a set of different sided dice for different purposes, right. which I'm not sure of all the purposes, but the main one is called a D20, right? Yeah. It's which a is 20 sided. 20 sided. And, and it's all about thresholds. For example, let's say, and I don't remember the exact numbers. They might even say them in the show, but let's say Will's fireball is, uh, the proficiency is 16. What does that mean? Uh, um, actually, let's lower that number. Let's say his proficiency is 12. What does that mean? Meaning, so if he, well, that means he's, his, his, his fireball is power 12 out of 20. Okay. But let's say that. Does dem- that mean it does 12 damage? Maybe. 
but the, the, depends the, on all the, the modifiers. The, of yeah, whatever the, it let's hits. say the hit, the hit. Because oftentimes, what you would do, you'll roll to see if you hit, and then if you hit, then you will roll again for the damage number. Mm-hmm. So let, let's say, well, let's let, let me back this so up. This is why computers were necessary for the rest of us to get into. <clears throat> let me back it up. <clears throat> so forget the proficiency on the fireball. Okay, let's say the demogorgon has a defense of sixteen. Okay. Which means that first initial roll, you need to roll 16 or better to hit the Demogorgon. And then if so, let's say you roll and you roll a 17. Okay, it's a hit. Now roll for damage. And then you roll an 8. Okay, you did 8 points of damage to the Demogorgon. He has a starter um, of 30 hit points, so now he has 22. Mm -hmm. And then you go through the fight like that. Now, you can roll a critical roll a critical roll would be if you rolled a 20 out of 20 on the damage or on the hit then that's a crit a critical you could you can uh you now can I see also why they call it critical roll you can also have a critical failure if you roll a one and that can usually the dungeon master can then say not only do you miss but you stumble and fall it backfired and yeah you stumble and you fall and you lose your sword and the demogorgon picks up your own sword and drives it through the, your back or whatever. So I don't, so See, I don't, this is what's great about the, the tabletop D and D is it's, it's not like a video game where you're controlling just a shot, you know, or a, a thrust of a sword or whatever you get to roll at a certain point, but then the dungeon master fills in all these elements of the story. Right. Arbitrarily in a lot of ways. So according to what he wants to have happen. So, um, Will fails the roll, right? Yeah, didn't he roll like a seven or something? I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's a little foreshadowing. It's heavy, heavy foreshadowing, actually. Well, as they're, some of the kids are riding home with him, and doesn't he tell them, the Demogorgon got me? Yeah. He's, he got me. Yeah. And, of course, a few minutes later, He's the disappeared. He has in. disappeared. One more quick note on parties. You know, we talked about por- parties of these groups of adventurers. The reason, one of the reasons these games are called role-playing games is that each member of the party plays a role. So it's like acting a role in a movie? Kind of. Like Will is a wizard, right? And a lot of, a lot of these, in fact, in some of these video games nowadays, they call it the Trinity. You have Tank... A tank is the beefy, heavily armored player with a, maybe he's got a shield and a sword and big plate armor. And his job is to take all the damage to, to, to get what we call the aggro, the aggravation of the monster. He taunts them, right? There's abilities called taunt and you taunt the monster to focus on the tank. And so that tanks, that monster's hitting the tank, taking the damage. He usually doesn't do a lot of damage. But he's got all these defensive powers and his ability to distract and keep the monster focused on him. While then the damage dealers, who maybe aren't quite as beefy, like a wizard wearing a robe, puts damage into the, into the monster. So that's the second part of the trinity. So you have the, the tank, then you have the damage dealer. The third part is the healer. Or the support character. And so he's mostly keeping that tank character alive 
and shielded and and then again. So know. is that the ideal <laughs> size for Dungeons and Dragons? Is a three No, no, you, you party? can play with you can play like in, in a lot of the video game versions, a party is usually four, five, or six. And then sometimes there's a raid where you have as many as twenty or thirty players, which are generally composed of a bunch of smaller groups. But in a and I mean, you could do it with three or four, five or six, uh, you know. We might have to call this episode D&D Deep Dive. <laughs> we're, really, the, we're really getting... It. Well, I Dear just listeners, think, you are now but, uh, are prepared to play Dungeons and Dragons. But keep this in mind because the Bobby whole... Bobby Flood will be the DM. The reason I think we've done this and spent 40 minutes on just D&D part is it lays the whole foundation for the whole... The whole series is a party a group of adventurers on this quest and they each have different roles to play. It's like D&D in real life for them. It is because these monsters are real and there's a lot of chance involved, a lot of rolling the dice. And Okay, uh, so that's that's interesting. So since you've since you've set it in that um light, what roles do the players play? Let's let's talk about Okay, well, who, we, who's who then? Who, well, who, let's talk about the characters of Stranger Things. Yeah. I think the Stranger Things is going to spill into a couple of weeks. I don't know it if we're able to get through it, it all this week. Well, and I don't think we need to do a play-by-play of each episode or whatever, right? Like, and then oh, this happens, and then nah. that happens. Okay, fine. And we can, but I think talking about the... I'm just kidding. The meta of it all is, is, the meta, that's, is more fun I think more that's, that's better, is to do the meta. And then we back that up or with examples from the series, but... Spoilers. Let's talk about the players or the you know the 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 characters. So you've got Mike, Mike Wheeler, right? All the world's a stage, and the men and women merely players. They have their entrances and exits, and one man in his time plays many parts. His acts being seven ages. This is uh, Shakespeare's "As You Like It." Yeah. Mike is the DM. Right? He's the he we 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 meet Mike and and he's he's the dungeon master. He's the party leader. And he's kind of the guy that the rest of the kids, you know, they're they're playing at his house. He comes from a fairly stable family. Um he's got a He's got a good-looking older in, sister. The parents in this show, after a while, the parents in this show just are completely oblivious as to what these kids are Mike's doing. Mike's dad is the best. There's a scene, we have to mention this, there's a scene at the, in the finale of season four, okay? Mike's dad, who's always just like, whatever. <laughs> Mike's dad is sitting on the couch watching the news. He's watching the local news. And here's a bit of a spoiler, but outside, literally outside in this dude's front yard, his hometown of Hawkins, Indiana is burning to the ground. He's on the news. He's watching the news and the news reporter is saying things like, you know, this is a coming from downtown Hawkins. This, there's reports of the satanic cult that in the, the leader behind the cult and there's more to come. And. And the dad's like, the news is always lying to us. <laughs> and it's like, okay, you're right. But also, have you looked out your window? Have you talked to your kids? <laughs> he's, he's great. It's funny. And in, in, in often a theme in these kid 
coming-of-age stories where the kids are the heroes and the, the only ones with common sense. Yeah, the parents are bravery. The adults in these types of films are usually idiots. Now, there's a couple exceptions in this film. A couple of adults figure it out and they believe the kids, right? You know, like Hopper and Joyce and yeah. Murray. Murray is great. And, but for the most part, you know, the, Murray, Murray could be like part of the mind virus show yeah, here. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> I'd love to have you on, Murray. But for the most part, the adults, you know, the school teachers, the, the law enforcement, um, the parents, they're just like, the government is fine and we need to trust the government. I think even Mike's dad says something like that. We got to, this, this is our government. They're on our side. Well, the, there's the big Russian scare that plays into this show too. Right. Well, and also during this time and, and prior to the <laughs> 80s, right, there was, there was, there was legitimate, I say legitimate meaning, not that the projects were legitimate, but the CIA and other nefarious, shadowy government agencies were doing experiments on kids and adults. This kind of stuff really happened. And so you have that, there's this kind of two-pronged storyline in the, in, the, in the series, right? You have the supernatural, and then you have the, the government agencies that are kidnapped kids and they're, they're experimenting on their minds with telekinesis right. that's why i was asking mind control. if this was a documentary <laughs> right well i guess and one of one of the sources i'm reading says that the original title was for the series was called montauk and it was going to take place in montauk new york loosely based on the montauk project which i don't know a ton about but quickly looking at some of that it, it was a, a project uh, conducted by the U.S. government dealing with uh, telekinesis and mind control and psychological warfare. <laughs> Basically what we see in Stranger Things. Well, and, they, and they've definitely spent a lot of time and money on this, and we don't know what technology or what uh, uh, spiritual metaphysical powers they have discovered or developed as a government, but uh, it's fairly well documented that they've been involved in this type of activity. And... There's just a ton of interesting stories out there, literature, movies, whatever. One of the funny shows is uh, Men Who Stare at Goats. Have you ever seen that? George Clooney and Ewan McGregor. I know of it. I haven't seen it's, it. It's, it's interesting. It's about these guys that end up in the, in the CIA's uh, telekinesis uh, remote viewing programs. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's kind of thought-provoking and funny at the same time. Check it out. I thought it was a good show. Yeah. And so, yeah, you've got, you've got this government that has this laboratory right in Hawkins, Indiana, and everybody... They think it's the, related to the power production yeah, or something. Just it's, some the, it's an energy laboratory. Right. No, I mean, people don't really pay much attention to it. Uh, again, it's a sleepy little town in the 80s. I always found it kind of strange that nobody, nobody really knew anybody else in the town that worked at the plant. But it's there. <laughs> and ultimately, you come down to this question or this realization, right? You have these innocent kids who, as they come of age, discover, uh, along with all the normal coming of age thing, things like 
you know, girls and athletics and being popular at high school, all those normal pressures. They also learn that there's evil in the world and that it can, it can hurt them. And how do they deal with that? And in this case, the evil is very literal, very, very uh, uh, apparent. Of course, in our real world, there is evil, right? And it may not be a demogorgon, a physical demogorgon, but it's uh, definitely evil. And how do we deal with that? Well, so you were going through the characters. Uh, Who's in the original party? So we got Mike. He's kind of the leader of the party. He starts out as the dungeon master, although... At a different point, they have Will trying to be a dungeon master, and it, it's not right. the kids have the kids have sort of grown out of Dungeons and Dragons at that point, having lived through it in their lives. Right. They're not as interested in it in the, in the game form. Although they do they do bring it back in season four pretty well with um, the the Hellfire Club and uh, the DM in that case. Right, it has leveled up. You've got older older yeah. kids. And that's a high school club. And the DM, the leader of the Hellfire Club, is um, Eddie, one of my favorite characters. I love Eddie. So the original party, you got Mike. Then you've got Dustin. So what what role does Dustin play? So I'm kind of spitballing here because I don't know that there's any definitive list, but I would... I would well. You're the one that came up with the tank, the the damage. Yeah, dealer I would list. The, I uh, would. I would think Dustin is sort of healer. like a, a berserker type, like a throw throw caution to the wind. Let's do this. So maybe he's a a, a damage dealer, but he's got a lot of armor. He's uh, in in the party, in their real world party, right? Which is our imaginary Stranger Things script world. He plays sort of a wizard of sorts. He's, he comes up with all these technological ideas to advance the plot and, advan- and right. advance the story. He's line. kind of the, he's sort of the, because keep in mind, in the setting of the game, Mike is not in the party, the adventurer's party. He's the DM. So he sets the tone, he sets the stage, he makes the rules. So, but Dustin, Dustin is, um, he's the planner, the schemer. And then he also, I think, is kind of the, the raw courage. When all else fails, run in with your sword swinging. You're remembering a little bit of uh, season four, I think. But the, the, the development of Dustin is, is interesting. He's, well, you, you know, going back to some of the other earlier episodes too. Yeah, he's a... He's a doer. He's a doer, but he's, he's also a technological yeah, he, adept. He, he, he's an adept here. He's the one that... It's he's the one that comes up with their radio system. That, you know that they, they got the walkie talkies, and you know that was always yeah. his doing. So Lucas, the the black kid. Yep, Lucas. No racism here, guys. He's no, black. It's just okay, who he is. that's the way that you. He's awesome character, good looking guy, really energetic and upbeat. Love love the actor and the character. Yeah, it really has a good really arc. fits in well. He's another longtime friend of uh, Dustin and Mike. And what, what, is, what role does he play? I would, we're talking uh, about not in, the, not in their D&D games again. Right. But this is in, the, in, their, in their real world quest well, in the Stranger theme, Things world. I think there's a lot of just almost one-to-one, though, between their D&D roles and their... Yeah. But Lucas, I think, is the, he's the voice of reason 
and caution. He would be like the cleric or the healer. He's the guy that says things like, I don't know if this is such a great idea, guys. Maybe we should Now, in the first up. season, though, in the first season, though, we see him gear up also. He has a set of gear. He, when they go out to, to perform their adventure right. roles, he's, he's got all the Vietnam uh, Army surplus, the binoculars, right. the, right. Well, the, the, the canteen. The cleric still has offensive spells. Okay. So, and again, I'm kind of just going off the top of my head. You're kind this of is, relating this to D&D, and I'm looking more kind of at the archetypal sure. side of things. So, so Lucas here, played by Caleb McLaughlin, McLaughlin uh, his last name is Sinclair, which may matter, St. Clair, or uh, that's, a, that's an old Templar name, an old... Um, Esoteric family. Templar is another <laughs> kind of uh, in a D and D setting, another sort of archetype, a holy yeah. flame, you know, sword of flame yeah. type, much like the real world counterpart. I don't know how much time and effort these guys put into it. I'll just say right up front, I think that the Stranger Things story arc, we we find out what's really going on in the final two episodes of season four we now understand and now we're prepped for season five which is the final battle i think and supposedly it is the last season is that correct i've not heard one way or the other but i there is a five they definitely set you up. yeah they set you up for a five and so i think what, what i was trying to say is we've i think we've talked about this on the podcast before in some cases you have uh people who know and then in some cases you have people who are just basing their story on echoes or resonant elements of of the the great epic that that they incorporate into their stories which make their stories great and then we talked about last week how some of the people like the recent Star Wars writers just blew it because they threw all the resonant elements of the of the epic narrative out the window but in some cases you get such incredible telling of certain of certain elements of the narrative that you've got to you got to wonder does this guy or girl know something like jk rowling who uh did of course harry potter and the avengers guys which of course was an inversion, which you've talked about. So, so i want to say up front i think that the the duffer brothers here are involved in sort of an echo type of a thing but they get a they get a really good archetypal outline of this narrative of the epic battle out in in the story for us to to uh play with and or to to consider and the elements that end up in it are really significant very significant i don't want to talk i don't want to talk about them right now but I think it's very significant. They did a great job, and the and the the stuff that shows up, the muses that they're listening to, got some really good stuff into the story right. for us to consider. So, but but I think it's because they base it all on Dungeons and Dragons, which of course is based on Tolkien's work, which or or mirrors it, and Tolkien's work is an allegory about the epic struggle between good and evil, the the real actual reality of the war engulfing this this life this experience that we're all caught up in in 
you know, here in the matrix and in our perceived reality. (laughs) And the, the great thing about stranger things is that the kids realize that there's more to their reality than what they had originally thought. Right. What, what might've thought been thought of as pretend it becomes very real to them. Anyway, so, so you got, so you got, uh, Mike, Dustin, Lucas, and then Will, who, what, what role does he play? He's, uh, he well, just disappears and yeah, he's you know that first season. I'm trying to think back. You know, we don't we meet Will that first episode, right? He's the wizard. He shoots the fireball. He misses. He he's goes, he he's very innocent. He's a very innocent looking person. Innocent. He's kind of physically weak. He's vulnerable. And he plays the wizard in their party, right? But in this, he's sort of the damsel in distress. Right, and he he gets he gets taken. He gets he gets uh, swallowed up by the Demogorgon into the Upside Down, which is really cool. We'll have to talk about the Upside Down. But Will um, Will becomes kind of, yeah kind of basically the the damsel in distress and and uh, see I don't want to call him that. I think that he represents innocence. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And and damsel in distress nowadays has a a bad connotation, but with all the trans and gay, and yeah, and just stuff going it's on, just all sorts of stuff. Like you can't have movies anymore with damsels in distress. Like we talked about last week with Ray. There's that ridiculous scene in the in the opening of Force Awakens where, um, what's his name? I remembered his name during the week. The stormtrooper. Traitor, def- uh, is it Fig or Finn? Finn, Finn, yeah. Okay, Finn, because it has something to do with his his number. He was just oh, okay. Anyway, he grabs her hand, and she's like, "Stop grabbing my hand!" And it's just like, come on, you you know. First of all, you're not going to be talking like that to someone when you're running from missiles, and you're probably not going to be trying to grab someone's hand. But if you are, it might be to pull them into safety. But you can't have a damsel in distress well, anymore. Well, the last, the last three Star Wars end up being preachy. That's right. the problem, is they're preachy, and nobody wants to be preached to, which, right. is what makes, which is what makes the Avengers series so incredibly effective. It's right. so subtle, such good storytelling that you don't realize you are imbibing <laughs> uh, the upside down right. <laughs> world narrative so uh so intently but but yeah will could be an will could be an uh, embodiment of the innocence that this entire town is about to lose not just the kids but the the town itself right they've just been plugging along it's your typical middle america right in the middle of america you know indiana is basically like the heartland and will 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 opens the eyes to all of these people that there's some pretty serious evil in the world, and it's right at your doorstep, yeah, so I do think he represents innocence personally in the broader scheme of things here. He definitely um spoiler here, of course, the whole thing this whole thing's a spoiler. In season two, they get him back. He's the kids like to say he's plot, plot armor. He's he's plot proof or something like that. Invulnerable to the plot, like sure. They they 
they've figured out that they don't have to be too worried about certain people dying because they're required, they're indispensable for the plot. So they're invulnerable to the plot. Uh, they have a word for this. I can't remember what they call they, that. They call it uh, plot armor. Plot armor. He's got plot armor. Yeah. yeah. And that's true. And sometimes you, you have to have certain characters that have that. Otherwise, you don't have a story. But some of the best stories where you think somebody has plot armor. It's a tragedy. Who doesn't have plot yeah. armor. And they, right. they flirt with that in season four quite a bit. Yeah, they do. Well, Will Byers here, he is, has disappeared. Even though he plays a role in, the, in the, the first season, he doesn't play as big of a role. But in the, in the following seasons, he's sort of a got a little bit of a clairvoyance, a little bit of a, he's changed, a, a sure. sixth sense or a third eye type of a thing. He, <laughs> because, see, he, he becomes a, a uh, seer in a certain way. Right, because he has this ability to sense this evil before it happens. Right. But in season one, he becomes the object of the quest. He becomes the grail. The MacGuffin? I would call him a MacGuffin because the MacGuffins are kind of silly. Right. Well, there there are varying levels of importance depending on the type of movie. Right. But if he represents innocence, then it's their their quest to reclaim their innocence before it's gone. Maybe. Maybe. And they get it back, but you can't unknow things. You can't unexperience things. That's right. Yeah. He he. It is a definite coming of age, a progression motif. I love. That's what's so great about the coming of age stories is that they they mirror our progression the idea is you're progressing you're supposed to be gaining greater light and knowledge you know not just in this life but throughout your entire progression and of course <laughs> along the way there there are real casualties right there's nancy's friend um the girl that nancy abandons for the boy well, we got to talk about the other three to start. So to start off the, the series, you have the party of the four boys. Right. And then the party grows. Which is interesting. You've got four boys. Right. Okay? And then you've got the one, the one girl related to the four boys. And that is, we'll talk about her last. That's 11. Okay. But then you get Nancy, Jonathan, and Steve, the little love triangle, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. And they, they, initially, they're not really in the party. They, they become... They become a they party. They become part of yeah. it later on. But initially, it's just Nancy and, is Mike's good-looking older sister that just sort of bothers him. But they have a good relationship. But what, what, what qualifies people for the party? It's their knowledge of the reality. Their knowledge of the actual reality is what makes them part of this family or this this party of adventurers, which is very significant. Right. It's as if maybe they had joined a church or been initiated into a cult. You use that word, initiation. They all had, that's the word I was thinking of. They all have, they are all initiated into the party, usually through trauma and... First-hand experience. Right. I was going to say that, or they, or they become part of an order. Right. Okay. So, the, and and they all know that they can count on each other to to perform certain functions because of their knowledge of the actual reality of what's going on in Hawkins. And in some cases, they have to initiate other people into the party 
So this is a significant... That happens later with like Eddie. Yeah. You know, thinking of season four. Some people don't... There are people that don't want to be initiated, but have to be initiated because they are caught up in elements right. of the story that, that, that force them to face the reality. Like in season four, where Eddie sees uh, this young cheerleader... Chrissy. Chrissy be killed right in, in, a, in a supernatural way right in front of his face. In his, literally in his, in his living, living room. room. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, it, one of the things that Stranger Things does throughout the entire series is they pound it home that this evil is... In your living room. Literally in your living room. It's it, the chicken it, heart. It, there, is no, there, is no, there is no escape. There's no sanctuary from this. It will follow you to the very core of your heart and soul in your home and your there's you know nobody I hope you all I hope you all listen to the chicken heart who ate New York City <laughs> by Bill Cosby when we did that when we mentioned that the other day it's way better than my little rendition on the podcast but it's just funny because he's like it's in your hometown. Dum, 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 dum. <laughs> it's coming up the front stairs. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> you know <laughs> the other thing that I I was thinking about with this uh, TV show is that the I don't think that the evil, the darkness, kills any adults. It's always targeting children. Uh, that is not the case. In episode or in season three, there are plenty of adults that get destroyed by it. But d- is it just kind of collateral damage? Oh, you mean main characters? Well, I just mean. There's there's collateral damage because some of the there's explosions at times and things like that. But well, season one there are plenty of adults in the Hawkins lab that get destroyed. Right. But season that's, two there are plenty of adults that, that get destroyed. I would call that collateral damage. Okay. Well, you just said there weren't any adults. That well, got destroyed. I mean targeted like by the actual villain, the actual evil. Because yeah, because there's season, prep, there's in season stuff. three. In season three, they're targeted for sure. Yeah, because there's there's like the dog, the dogs that get out, and the demogorgon itself. But kids are definitely front and center. Right, well, yeah, but they're but the but, kids are the the kids are the the um the protagonists. They're the they're yeah. the story. But there's other kids, like especially in season four. But even the first. It seems like the first casualty of the whole series is, is a girl. It's a kid, right? The girl that Nancy abandons. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just think maybe we can get into that later. I think it's interesting. We do learn a little bit more about the motivation behind the, the villain in season four. Oh, yeah. We learn a lot there in season four. But we keep getting sidetracked from our party analysis. Well, the party, party analysis is important. Nancy Wheeler is Mike Wheeler's older sister. Sister. Yeah, and she's popular, and she is, uh, you know, the strong feminine archetype. She's she, a reporter for the school newspaper. Yeah, and then goes on to become a a real reporter, reporter for a local paper. Well, y- anyway, she <laughs> she that's funny when she's dealing with all those guys in season three. Right, she's essentially their assistant, but. You've got, you've got this love triangle that goes on between Jonathan, Nancy, and Steve. Steve Harrington is the really popular kid at school. Jonathan's sort of the outcast. He happens to be Will's brother. Mm-hmm. 
And these guys, these older kids play, I think, sort of a different level. So I don't know if you want to, I don't know how much we should really get into this because what's going through my mind is the the great narrative, what I would call the great narrative, the narrative that's always been distorted and apostatized from throughout history to try and distract people from the actual reality. And there are there have been throughout history keepers of the narrative, and uh, we we see in these great epics, in the great myths, we see certain types of roles that get repeated and reused and changed and morphed or whatever. But this all goes back to at least as far as we can see, it goes back to Egyptian religion. That's where that's where we with the available information we have, if we're going to chase back the narrative that goes all the way back to Adam, it all sort of runs into Egypt. That's where the hermetic tradition starts. That's where the the records originally were. This is what the, the Jewish religion wanted to... Uh, they wanted to distract you from or, or remove your attention from the great narratives engraven upon the walls of the Egyptian temples. Did, 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 have you listeners ever considered the fact that the first commandment that says that you shall make no likeness of anything in the heavens, on the earth, or in the waters beneath the earth, that that was a direct attempt to keep you from looking at the writings on the Egyptian temple walls? You ever talk about that, Bobby, you and I? Do you, do you realize that the first commandment is actually messed up? Uh, yeah, I think we have. I, have we, we talked, may, about, it on the talked show? about. I don't know if we've talked about it on the show. If, if this is your first time understanding this, you need to you need to think about this. The Jews that gave us the Bible, they went through a massive apostasy. And if you're if you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, or if you're involved in Mormonism in any way, you know of the thing called the Book of Mormon. Which <laughs> the only reason we have the Book of Mormon is because. Lehi and Nephi and their family left right before Jerusalem was destroyed because it had perverted the religion that they had been given from their forefathers. And the perversion is what you all think. What, what, it's, it's what the, it's what the, <laughs> the perverted religion is Judaism. It's, it's what you're taught in gospel doctrine class was what was what came out of Egypt. Well, what came out of Egypt was nothing like what you think, and that's why they got destroyed. If it, you know, if it was in any way, shape, or form close, then they wouldn't have crucified Christ, and then we wouldn't have all these problems with the narrative, okay? So the first, the first commandment, there's a lot of good things in the Ten Commandments, but the first one is essentially the basis of monotheism. And if you're a Mormon or whatever, you're a polytheist. Let me remind you, you believe in a mother, a father, a son, daughters, you know, gods in the heavens, the hosts of heaven, you believe in all that. And that's what the, the Deuteronomists tried to erase when they, when they changed the religion at the time of Lehi. They, this monotheism, this amorphous God, this God with no body parts or passions, no, no personality, you know, this God that's just way higher than us and is just trifling with us here on the earth, and there's no reason for your existence, you know, no progression. That's the invention of the of uh, evil people way back in the day. And so that first commandment that says, I'm the Lord thy God, I brought you out of Egypt, 
you will have no other gods except me, is, is trying to reframe the discussion away from the Egyptian religion, which tells the story of the cosmos, which we have talked about in the, in the episode on war. I forget which number that was. We kind of laid this out pretty well, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll get into it. We kind of discussed the possibility of doing a little bit more detailed cos- cosmology discussion or teaching in this in this podcast i'm not sure if we should you know like, that's the type of stuff that can get you burnt at the stake and well, neither bobby or i want to be burnt at the stake it's also something i think kind of discovering it on your own is a great experience right you know oh but it's supposed to be taught. I mean, it's right. supposed oh, to for sure. That's right. what that's the whole point of all the festivals in the ancient world, or the temp, the temple dramas is supposed to tell you the true story, and those are the things that have been modified. That's the whole point of the Genesis story. It was a was an attempt to modify, or allegorize secret teachings, and um, lay them out there so that they couldn't be destroyed by the. Uh, the 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 evil people that wanted to change the narrative, because there there are two narratives. One in in the one narrative, you've got the gods of light who are the good guys, and in the other narrative, it's the other guys that think they're the good guys, right? And anyway, um, the what what I'm getting at is that this all goes back to Egypt, and in Egypt you have. Four sons of Horus, right? You have Horus, the great son of the great father, Amun. And Amun has a wife, and she's Hathor. And Horus, he has sort of a split personality here. You've got Horus in the heavens and Osiris down in the underworld, or if we haven't already broken it to you, this is the underworld. We are in the underworld right now, which is interesting because... In uh, Stranger Things, you have an upside down, right, <laughs> which is essentially their underworld. And uh, but anyway, Isis uh, is the consort or wife or companion of Osiris, and you've got Set, the evil one, and you've got Horus, who has four sons who play a role. They're four adventurers or four angels or four guardians or whatever you want to call them in, in Christendom. These are the four archangels: Michael. Uh, Raphael, Gabriel, and Uriel. You know, the, the this is this is these are the archetypes. There's a, there is a uh, a very defined narrative that has come down to us through the ages, if we're willing to look for it, and it has stuff like this in it. So this is why I think it's significant that you got four adventurers, and it's also significant that. In Avengers Infinity War, you find that Thanos has four henchmen, right? Because he's the archetype of Christ in all of that. And he happens to have these four henchmen, which he calls his four, the, the four, they call them the children of Thanos. So they're essentially the sons of Horus in Egypt. Uh, in X-Men Apocalypse, the, the main villain in that one, I think his name is El Nadasur, he has four henchmen, right? So you see, you see these types of themes repeated over and over again. And so um, I think our exploration of how this relates to Dungeons and Dragons is really fun. But what's, what's on my mind, and this is me taking a long monologue here, 
I'm trying to give you a little window into how I see it because they they have elements of uh, of all of these archetypes, narratives, and characters in the story, and I think that you know they're they're definitely influenced on some level by the the literature that they've consumed, and in some in on some level by the muses, right? That's what they like to call it in in literary circles the that they that they get these inspirations and i think they are inspirations in some cases they're good and in some cases they're bad but the but the roles and functions of the of the players of the script they matter too because that's they're the ones that act out the story and and so when you have um when you have uh, an Adam and an Eve pair, or an Atum and Usasset pair, or a Horus and Isis pair, or an Amun and Hathor pair, it matters. This this goes back to these these narratives in in re- pre Renaissance Italy. Dante had Beatrice. You know his his he's Mike and she's L. <laughs> She's eleven there, and I I don't I don't think it's any mistake whether the Duffer brothers intentionally did it or not that her name is eleven because L is woman in French and they call her L you know so whether they intended that or not that's what she is that's what we all see when we watch this ritual drama unfolding from the safety of our living rooms. <laughs> You know, it's 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 really interesting to me. So that's that's anyway a window into my mind is how I'm looking at this, right. this story and and what it might really mean to us. Well, the safety of our living rooms isn't safe, right? That's what they're trying to say. It's not safe. But even in 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 a real world situation, that uh, we're not completely protected by the the powers that be or these evils they can they can come into our lives through many different ways um we've got two more people we need to mention okay and that is hopper Mm -hmm. and joyce byers now we haven't mentioned we haven't talked a lot about l and then when does max come into the scene Season two. She is season two edition. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about let's Hopper talk about, and Joyce. Uh, yeah, Max. Okay. So these other these other kids, Eddie, Max, Billy, uh, Robin. These are all important players. But to our to our initial setup, the, the, the ones we've right. talked about so far are very significant, and uh, we're working our way up because Joyce and Jim Hopper are very important to the plot, and they are adults. Take it away. Well, Joyce is Will and Jonathan's mom. And she's played by Winona Ryder. Mm-hmm. And she's a single mom, working mom, kind of frazzled, stressed. Their house is kind of run down. And Haw- Hawkins kind of is this, it's a, it's a town with a, with a couple of different uh, economic classes, right? Well, it's interesting. We kind of see it grow, too. Right. Like you get in season three, the Starcourt Mall. Right. No mistake that it was called Starcourt. <laughs> we'll get to that later. So you, you've got like, like Mike. Mike and Nancy come from a pretty stable home. Mom and dad. You know, dad's a dead, kind of a deadbeat in a, in a just sort of a 
going through the motions way, right? He goes to his Mike's job. Mike's dad? Yeah, he goes... To, I don't he, think I'd call him a deadbeat. I'd call it, him a, what, your prototypical contributing member of society. Yeah, he goes to work. De- what I mean deadbeat is he's not real involved with his kids. He's, he's a just, plot deadbeat. He's a provider. His, you know, his wife's maybe not super satisfied what's with interesting, the relationship. Yeah, yeah, what's interesting is multiple times I think they show him asleep. Sleep in, in the, the couch. In the, on the easy chair or on yeah. the couch and... And the news playing in front of him. Yeah, It's kind of interesting. I know we're supposed to be talking about Joyce here, but we're getting there. Throughout the series, Mike's dad doesn't really change a whole lot. His wardrobe doesn't change. His appearance doesn't change. His attitude doesn't change. His mom, you kind of see her go through the, the fads of the 80s, right? She's the exercise lady for a while. She's The swimming pool stuff she, is really funny. Yeah, she, you know, her and Billy get a little bit... Uh, nearly, well, she, flir- she flirts with uh, this adulterous situation, right? And, and uh, Billy's a, a fun, kind of interesting character. Oh, that was great! Yeah, that was great stuff. Um, but but they're middle, upper middle class, right? I think that's one of the reasons the the team meets at Mike's house because he's got the space. They've got a nice basement. Yeah, there's always snacks. Um, Mom and dad are there. D- Dustin. Looks like he's comes from a single home, single parent. Yep. Uh, Lucas has a mom and dad, and that seems yep. like a pretty stable situation. He's got a little sister who we get to know later on, but then Will comes from kind of a busted up situation, right? right. I, I don't remember if they talk about dad much. Single parent home. You do meet the dad in season two. Jonathan's kind of struggling with school. He's sort of your kind of an outcast. Yeah, just. A lot of people don't Outcast really... junior, senior type of a thing. Yeah. Um, and then Joyce is constantly struggling to make ends meet, right? Keep the lights on. Right. She's uh, kind of haggard, frazzled, um, doing her Cares best. Cares a lot about her kids. Yeah, doing her best. Super invested. She has to upend her entire life when, when Will... And she's kind when, of the when only... Disappears. She's kind of the only one after the first few days that... Other than the kids, the other friends who keep looking for Will. Well, I really like that they have these adults, these these powerful adult figures. She is a very powerful figure. Mm-hmm. Um, she is a very much a motherly figure, and I think that it's great that they that they have Joyce and Hopper playing this father and mother role to the to the parties. Yeah, they are these like um, what what what's the word I'm looking for? They are determined to the to their deaths type of determination protectors of the kids well and one of the reasons for that is they are the first adults and correct me if I'm, my memory's wrong here but they're the first adults to understand the reality of this awful situation cuz the kids try to tell adults like well, they There's experience the right, and they experience it, and they believe it through, um, like, like Hopper uh, start starts and, to Hopper's the chief of police. Yeah, he's the sheriff at the time. I love the Hopper character. He's a great actor. He uh, he's a great strong male right. character, and I I love how they portray him in this. This guy is just awesome. He's a great hero for our and a great father for the for the group in that sense. And his own backstory, they they've created a pretty good kind of redemption arc for him as well given his, yeah. his past yeah i like how they work that in but anyway he he gets on the trail of these strange happenings here in um 
in Hawkins, the supernatural stuff going on, and he is an investigator. He's a seeker. He's a searcher, right? He won't rest until he gets to the bottom of it, which is great because the other the other adults are sort of disinterested and that's how they're portrayed. So Joyce similarly is thrust into it because Will is missing and she is unwilling to accept that he has fallen into the to this uh, quarry lake and th- which is what the authorities try to sell to her is that that their son her son has died in an accident. They go so far as to make a fake body mm-hmm. and um she won't believe it and and she's she essentially has sort of this holy ghost type of a thing going on with the lights and energy in her home she she wants she wants to find him so badly she's willing to believe these faint um signals they kind of from, from will from the beyond i mean they kind of portray her as like losing her mind right she's got yeah you, Christmas you wonder lights all you wonder over yeah she wonder what's and, going on with joyce and people first. are starting to get really worried about her but uh, uh this discovery about the way that like with electric currents and lights is a way to communicate with the upside down plays the idea a big is there's role. energy coming back and forth there's energy transferred between the two worlds right so yeah, that's Joyce, uh, a quick overview of Joyce, and she plays a key role throughout the series. She's really the 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 she's sort of the wheel that just won't stop rolling, right? When when the rest of the town is ready to move on and just put all this stuff behind them, even if that meant oh well, Will's dead. She, well, they hold a funeral and she goes to it, but she's not convinced. Right. And then Hopper, we've touched on, he's, he's the chief of police or the sheriff, big, strong guy, and becomes a believer. Pretty and, quickly, he becomes a believer. Eventually, eventually, you know, becomes, there's sort of a, a the, well, not sort of, event, but spoilers, they, there's the love story there with Hopper and Joyce. Right, that develops over a long and, period of time. But becomes a father figure for Elle, like a literal father. Like he takes her in and he's raising her, calls her his daughter. She calls him well, her dad. Well, they, they uh, at the end of season two, doesn't uh, the other doctor, what's his name? You've got two doctors in here. Yeah, uh, Paul Reiser plays Dr. Sam Owens and Matthew Modine plays Dr. Martin Brenner. Right. And and Owens is kind of like the good good guy and He's Modine's the, kind of a They're a they're bit both creepy. involved with this uh, horrendous program. The MK Ultra program. The MK Ultra monarch type mind control stuff. And Brenner's the the hardliner, the guy who pushes this stuff all to the limits. And Owens Paul Reiser character is the mm-hmm. the softer guy who who kind of real you know he's got some humanity left in him and kind of tries to get out but you can't get out well he he helps too he was right. say he was saved from uh death by jim hopper and he is uh sort of a uh if if we were looking at this in the in the pantheon of the greek gods he's sort of a god favorable to the party rather than antagonistic to the party in some cases brenner is seems quite antagonistic to the party to the to the adventurers well brenner 
is loyal to the cause, right? He, he's not really interested in the individuals. Well, he seems to be, yeah, he seems to be loyal to pow- to the development of L. Or, as, yeah, not to L as an individual, but to what L could represent. Yeah, the, to, the weapon for her that to, she to, could be. Be, to become the ultimate powerful being. He's, he's very dedicated to that. And so it's a little bit twisted. Although in the end, he he does come around a little bit and make a uh, helpful. He does help the party in the end. But well, anyway, we see we see this all, of course, revolving around Eleven L, the woman, this uh, this young lady, young girl who has supernatural powers, right? And we find out in that first season that she has opened a portal to another dimension or another realm, which they end up calling the Upside Down, and. It's funny because there are actually three different r- dimensions portrayed in the movie. You have the r- the real world, you have the astral world, where is that which is represented by wa- her walking on water. Now, in in our Christian creation scheme, this is the firmament. There's a the waters represent heavens, and the and the waters are separated by. Um, veils and and gates and stuff like that and so and she's able to use that realm to basically to travel or occupy other people's psyches and their memories and their yeah she can find people you know using that she can see what they're doing right so she so you have a it's sort of a heavenly realm or a uh, a limbo space. I don't know what you want to call it, but this this is very much a cosmological element that you'll see in in myth, in Egyptian religion, in Greek religion, in in Dante. You know, that you move on to different places, and they have different functions, and different beings are in those spaces. So uh, you've got that, and you've got so you got. We don't know where that world is, right? They never really give you a sense of it. I don't know. Is it above, or is it to the side? Is it a different dimension? But, but in the um, in in the main storyline, it, it's sort of disconnected because you have the the physical world, and then you have the upside down, which is sort of underneath. It's kind of like they're depicting it directly under the ground <laughs> but yeah. it's technically a different dimension and, and l has opened a portal to that world and it's a it's a copy of their you know the real world but it's corrupted it's it's seriously corrupted with these i wouldn't call them vines tentacles <laughs> well there's life uh, and, going on yeah there, right there's something going on in that dimension and uh the episode, the last two episodes of season four tell us how that how that came how that was discovered or who's in it who's controlling elements mm-hmm. there it's very interesting um l l represents the divine feminine she represents divinity okay she has superpowers guys well, she, yeah. that's just it that's well, she that's the way it works uh, she represents uh she represents light that that uh she's good that can cut through the darkness and you know light plays a big part in this series mm-hmm. same with music and you know 
friendship and mm-hmm. memories and things like that. But uh, yeah, L L is a great character, right? And 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 she the, she's sort of the key to this whole thing. And 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 the second to last in the last episodes unlocked the the cosmology of uh, Stranger Things for me. The way I see it is that you've got this other character named is it what's his name uh, One? What what do they call him? One, yeah, because this. This laboratory experimented on several kids, and they didn't have names. They were just numbered. One, two, three, all the way up to 11. I think she was the last one. I don't know if there's a 12. I don't think there was. And, yeah, number one is someone we don't know much about in the early seasons. We don't know anything about him until season four. Right. I think we hear something like, oh, he, he died or something like that. His, this is uh, Vecna, is what they call him. Again, another D and D monster made real. Yeah. He, I, I want to call him Charlie or or Henry or something. What do they call him? Henry. The, they call him Henry. One slash Vecna slash Henry. Is that what it was? I think. And we're getting to some big time spoilers here, guys. Well, we already said that. I know. But this is important to the overall setup. I think we, we, we should talk about it now and we should talk about it in three, three weeks when we finally finish our conversation on Stranger Things. Sure. Because the last two episodes of season four, they finally tell you the layout of the land. You had a literal titan amaki or, or theomaki, which means in Greek, a war between the titans or a war between the gods at Hawkins Labs. Hawkins right. Labs has a program going where they're experimenting with godly individuals, people who have superpowers. That's our, whether the Duffer brothers meant it or not, there it is. All the superhero movies, all, all of these wizard movies, when you've got people who are special compared to the other people, they represent either the gods or the high gods because there are levels in the heavens. And that's what L is. She's one of the highest gods. Come to earth to perform functions to save her friends, to save her people, right? And it's not everybody, it's her party. And the people that are in the party are the initiates. And they could either represent the lower gods or the demigods as, as per Greek mythology or whatever. But it's so, whether they meant it or not, it's right there in front of you and you have a Titanomachy and many of the gods are killed or wounded or cast down or whatever you want to call it. And the the end result is that the evil one the is evil banished. What? The evil what? The evil number one. The evil the one. one who claims to be the oldest. The one that claims to have the birthright. The the one who you thought was good at first, favored by the father. Yeah, he rebels, kills everybody, and ends up banished to the upside down, the underworld, the realm beneath. Right. <laughs> Okay, do you see the setup? This is the <laughs> archetype. There it is. And um, in tr- and I'm going to give give some of my best thoughts here right up front so you can kind of see this developing. In true Hunibly fashion, in true ancient world fashion, the nexus point that is cemented in, in season four is a cross, a cardo and a decamanus with the center of town, the, the town, uh, the main town hall library hall. building yeah. at the very center of the X. We, we've seen that a, a rift is opened up between the, the upside down and Hawkins, 
right there in season four. And if you were if you were an architect in the ancient world, you would be laying out your town based on an on ophthalmos, so or uh, not ophthalmos, an omphalos, op- uh, a central point, a a nexus point. You try to find the nexus point between the the this world and the spirit world, where the energies were the strongest, and you'd set that point right in the middle, and then you'd you'd lay out an ax a north south axis and an east west axis. And um, then you'd build your city around that central point and you'd put your temple or your altar or your, your most sacred things right there in that central point. And that would be uh, the place of connection between the physical realm and the heavens. That's, that's right. the way the ancients looked at it. Read Nibley's Temple and Cosmos and go look for this stuff. That that uh, temple is supposed to be the nexus point and it's supposed to represent the cosmos. It's supposed to be a model and teach you about everything. So it's no mistake that the library and the town center is right there. That's the origin of the, the, the star imagery, right? The, the triangle, upside down triangle, the right side up triangle, touching in the middle which has been morphed, I think, into like the Star of David. You have the two triangles, mm-hmm. the, those two realms overlapping. I don't know if Nibley gets into that, but I think he does. Nibley gets into tons of stuff. <laughs> you really should be reading Hugh Nibley, and you really should be looking at it as if he knew stuff. In, instead of looking at him as a defender of correlated Mormonism, look at him as somebody who's like, look, I know so much more than everybody else. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> and defend Joseph Smith, and uh, you can try to figure out the rest of it from here. But <laughs> it, it, it's amazing what that guy left for us if we have the, if we have the perspective to look at it. And if you, I think if you look at Hugh Nibley's works with this lens that we're looking at Stranger Things, you'll see that he has laid it out. He discusses the feud between Jesus and Lucifer often. He discusses the feud between Adam and Lucifer. In plenty of places. Go read the, the essay, The Expanding Gospel. And he's not afraid to talk about the women who are also involved in the fight. In fact, in Egypt, it's Sekhmet, the, the lioness uh, goddess that is a persona or a, or a facet of, of the great mother's personality. She's the great destroyer. She's the one that comes in and wrecks the evil ones. Well, what does El do? She comes in and she wrecks the evil one. She sends him to the other dimension. She she locks him out. That's where the great the great struggle is. But she also, by doing so, un, kind of unleashes him to wreak havoc in that realm, grow in power mm-hmm. and stature, and then wreak havoc now in this realm. Well, right, and that's what makes this a great story is the peril that we're in every right. hour, right? right? The peril that Hawkins is in every hour from the evil one. Right. And if Satan could fall from the highest heaven, we're in peril all throughout our entire existence. Even in your own living room. Even in your own living room. Okay, well, that, that, that's a pretty good overview of kind of the foundation. I think so. <laughs> now look again whatever the duffer bl- brothers were thinking you know if you guys want to come on the program and just refute us that's great but i'm I, i'm gonna have you're gonna have a hard time convincing me that you're not <laughs> influenced in a certain ways to tell to ha- have this retelling of the story and you know what i like about what they're doing is they seem they seem pretty pure 
it's not like they're out there to try to invert the story. They've got great archetypes. They've got, uh, uh, you know, a good love story, a good love triangle, you know, who is right. Who's, uh, not who's, um, Nancy, Nancy going to be paired up with. She's got to, she's got to figure out who her companion really is. You know, when of course everybody's rooting for Steve. Are they? But you know, Jonathan. I thought you were rooting for John. I think I thought in the first movie you were rooting for Jonathan because he was sort of the outcast. Well, he was the the first season. It it was kind of an it was an odd pair, right? Because Nancy's super popular. Nobody even knows who Jonathan is. It's an unlikely pairing. And uh, but it's funny because they they end up talking to Murray, the the uh, conspiracy theorist. That's he's he's sort of ancillary to the plot. He's great, but um, he's important in the sense though that. He's a head nod to all of this real world conspiracy stuff that they they flirt with, right? Like like MK Ultra and yeah, other stuff we've talked well, about. Well, the episode where they're drinking the vodka, like the kids come to him to try to get him to spill the beans on the whole thing, and he's like, "You can't. Nobody will believe it." So we have to water it down. He waters down his vodka and he shows like he realizes, yeah, let's water this whole story down and we can blow the lid on the Hawkins lab as long as we don't tell what's really happening. We'll just say a kid died and that they're engaged in misappropriation of funds or something. Right. And that'll get them all fired. Right. Where have we heard something like that recently? Right. So, and anyway, Nancy... No one would believe this. It's Na- far Na- too outlandish. Nancy and Jonathan, through their shared experience, become a companionship, a, cu- a couple. A, uh, I use the companionship in the most romantic terms right. not <laughs> well, they they hook up you they know, they become they start dating and yeah their differences you know their cultural and their economic economic differences are overcome because because their shared experience through their through their shared experiences through this trauma that kind of brings them together that their younger brothers mm-hmm. kind of uh, initiated. Well, it wasn't really. Them. It wasn't really the younger brothers. It was L's experience with right. the the evil. And we need to talk about L's arrival. I think that's important. That's a you know you're looking at like a hero's journey. Yeah. Before you, before you jump to L though, remember that you've got Hopper and Joyce that do kind of a similar thing. You had right. the whole Sean Aston character. His name's uh, Bob. Bob. Poor right. Bob. He's great. He's a he's a great addition to season three, but uh, he doesn't survive it. Well. Yeah, well, go ahead. But but Joyce and Hopper are sort of destined for each other, and you know that. Yeah. But they have to struggle to get to get that, and it's their shared experience that brings them together. And um, boy, Hopper got in shape for season four. Wow. Well, prison, show him with his shirt off. A, pr- a, a Russian a, a prison will prison do that labor to you, huh? camp will do that to you. <laughs> he's he's like the indestructible man. But and, anyway, and, go. Uh, Bob's an interesting character. You know, he's he's a bit of. Um, I wouldn't say comic relief, but he kind of represents the everyman. And of course, he's an actor that a lot of people love, right? Sean Astin is Rudy. Yeah. He's Sam Gamgee. He's he's in Goonies. Well, he's sort of a he. he he's also on the same level as uh, Joyce and Hopper in that he's a believer. He doesn't need to be convinced right. too much, and he he's a studier. He works it out, and he joins the party. He joins the party and becomes part of the group. But you think, you think he's gonna he's gonna provide for Joyce these things that she doesn't have, right? Stability. When she likes, she loves him for it. She she right. loves him for who he is. And of course, he's ripped away from her in a brutal, bloody, 
thing way right in front of her eyes and, mm-hmm. and and that's when you know that Joyce at least not yet at that point Joyce is not destined for those things she has work yet to do before she mm-hmm. before she can uh, can enjoy those things and I think she still has yet work yet to do you know they tease the relationship with Hopper and there's a couple times where they are just about to kiss and finally acknowledge that they love each other and they're interrupted by yeah. whatever. And then at the end, they finally get to kiss each other and a bit of a, a bit of a, a, a breather there, you know, kind of a happy moment. And then they have to go back into the battle. And then everything explodes around them. Yeah, they have to go back into the battle. Uh, very interesting stuff. So uh, just more on Bob. M- more on Bob, I just said. Bob is actually a wizard type. <laughs> he wasn't a he's, moron. <laughs> he's actually, he, he's like, a, uh, like a, an adept. He, he jumps in, he, he sees it for what it is, he tries to help, he figures things out. He, he's, he's a tinkerer. He's a part of, the, part of the story. He's trying to discover the actual reality. Do, doesn't he work at Radio Shack? He works at Radio Shack, Which at yeah. the time was a, was a kind of cutting edge electronics store oh it's great how they get all this 80s stuff in right. there you know but that's an important part of who he is right because i'm trying to remember now he has a video camera yeah that he plays, helps a, solves, plays part of season two he helps is solves, it season two or three he helps solve some of these mysteries it's season I, two that bob is in I not three i think it's, it's two. season two yeah but he helps yeah with his expertise he, he helps solve some of these yeah he mysteries. Un- uncovers uh the map, he, you know, they, they're, uh, you've got Will, who, is it Will that's coloring all these uh, yeah, yeah. things that he's seen and it ends up being a map of a, sort of the, the upside down, how it's infiltrating mm-hmm. Hawkins and Bob helps, helps them determine where everything is and he, he helps save Hopper, right. in fact, in season two. Hopper, Hopper is sort of, so he is such a warrior. He's, and, and that's definitely, I think, the big arp archetype he plays. If you if you've got a tank in this series, yeah, Hopper mean, is the tank. There's literally a scene where he's fighting off the monsters with a sword, <laughs> yeah, you know, and absorbing all the damage while the party members. Not only that, help but he he actually is effective in right. in dist- he's a damage dealer too, right? In, in, especially in season four. But uh, yeah, Bob is instrumental in rescuing Hopper, who who has maybe foolishly gone into the upside down and right. and needs help from his friends. <clears throat> well, it's easy to see why this series has um, really caught caught fire right out of the gates during season one, which was five or six years ago, I think by now, and just. Yeah, COVID threw a wrench in this. They had to, for season three, they kind of had to bring the kids into high school. Was right. it season three or was it four? When it, when is it that? Uh, I think it's. Are they freshmen in high school in season four? It's season four that they've grown up a little bit. They've all gotten a little taller. Lucas seems to have changed his appearance the most. He's. And he's going through good, some lo- stuff, good looking right? kid with a fa- uh, what do you call that haircut? A fade. He's got that uh, like the flat top, the flat fade. top. He's he's an athlete. Yeah, he's stuck between both uh, cultures. You know, d- two different cultures. His his childhood friends, the D and D nerds, and the popular jocks. 
you know, and he he has to make a choice. It's uh, it's it's a great series. All the characters are fun. They're interesting. You care about them, and so they they've done a great job. They've done a really good job of creating this universe. And as we've touched on, there's a lot of of layers to what's going on, and a lot of stuff we can read into it. Maybe some of it's not there, but it is there. It is there. Well, yeah. Whether or not it was intentional or not, I don't. That's think the even, question. Even is it intentional? It's there, right? It's there. And how can we, uh, how or even should we take any of that and, and sort of say, okay, how do we, what do we do with this knowledge in the real world? Right. Because uh, we don't have a, a friend who can move things with her mind who's going to be there to save us. But we do have parties, don't we? No, I would argue that we do have that friend. We just won't get her, we won't find her in the woods. We don't, we don't cultivate those relationships very well. Right. We do need to, I think we should, before we end this for the day, we've got to talk about Elle's arrival. Yeah, please. Sorry, I, I distracted you no, from that. No, it's fine. I think that would be a good thing to wrap up. We, we, we wrap up the characters, sort of, sort of the overview of what's going on here. And, and this is what's great about literature and movies, uh, dramas, uh, stories, is that there's so much more than what is said. When, you, when, you've, when you're dealing with allegory and symbol, you as an individual can draw out of that, or anybody that sees it can draw out of it things that God wants you to draw out of it. You can, you can be the seeker on the quest and get mm-hmm. out of it far more than maybe even the author ever intended because, uh, because of the narrative... Um, style of teaching right you know this isn't math this isn't this this is narrative this is the story of life meaning before you came here while you're here and after you're here (laughs) It, it, it transcends us and so therefore i think people are able to get a lot out of it now you can argue over what's right what's wrong what's intentional what's not which narratives tend to support and honor the gods of light versus following the wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can definitely pervert narratives and you can definitely perhaps draw the wrong conclusions. You know, that's the big question. Is there an objective right and wrong? Is there a real, a real battle going on here? Yes, that's, if, you, if you're listening to our podcast, you know that at least I, I and Bobby think that way, that there is, <laughs> there are sides to be chosen. Right. And you can, you can take things in the wrong direction. So I think uh, in, the, in the real world here, I think we you are. You keep saying this is the real world. <laughs> the world we <laughs> occupy. Inside think, of Plato's cave from where we're broadcasting. I think we're experiencing uh, the, a great choosing, a time of choosing where we, we have to decide whose side are we on. And, and you get to decide which narrative you're going to believe because right. the bad guys want to tell you a certain narrative and you can, you can agree with that. Or we can just try to sit in the recliner like Mike's dad and sleep through the whole thing. But eventually Mike's dad, uh, here's a prediction for season five. Mike's dad is going to wake up. Okay. And he's going to maybe do something, albeit probably small, but something significant. Maybe well, not. I, I'm hoping we're sp- we'll spend some more time developing the storylines, and then I'll uh, then we'll have some interesting uh, predictions for for season five. But uh, tell us about L. Well, and Elle, her arrival. So we meet L. Okay, she's busted out of the lab after this catastrophe, right? The wizard duel. 
what did you call it? The uh, the Titanomachy or right. the uh, or the Theomachy. Now this is many years after that. She, uh, th- we know from season four that there was a group of children that were had the godlike mm-hmm. superpowers, right? And uh, many of them were killed by Vecna, right? Slash one slash, right? Is it Henry? I think it's Henry. Okay, so he he of course represents our cosmic evil one, and anyway, he gets banished to the upside down, and then L is the only one left to work with Doctor Brenner. Well, and so for many years there, he's he's continuing to develop her gifts, and she has been disassociated. She has forgotten. Right. I, I wouldn't call her multiple personality disassociated, but she has she has uh, hidden away memories. She doesn't remember everything. She's compartmentalized what happened and I'm, I'm and she finally gets fed up with Brenner and escapes so she, she gets out of the lab but she's in a little hospital gown she's running through the woods yeah but remember the the reason that she gets she gets upset and and finally leaves is because Brenner has her in the in the astral dimension the water dimension and she's looking for something and she ends up touching the demogorgon mm-hmm. and opens a portal between the two worlds, a rift, a gate. And again. S- again. And she leaves having opened the gate and that's what sets off the events that cause Will to be uh, abducted. Yeah, the Demogorgon escapes. Yeah, the Demogorgon is now running. And Barb. The, 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 the boundaries between the worlds have been uh, broken and now we're seeing bleed over between this... Right and upside down, and the and the real world in Hawkins. And L ends up at a little diner, and the the owner takes pity on her and feeds her, mm-hmm. and he ends up getting killed for doing that by the Hawkins Labs people. Yeah, Hawkins Lab people are right on her trail. And I'm trying to remember now how she ends up. How does Mike find her? Well, they find her in the woods. They're looking for Will. Right. And the, and she's all dirty and, you know, she doesn't talk much. Right. She's, she's buzzed. She, her hair is buzzed. So right. she she it's like a strange girl. You know, they're not sure right. what they've got there. But he has compassion on her. He invites her to be. He takes her into that part of their. He party. takes her into that safe place, right? The basement, Mike's basement, where that's the the party headquarters. That's the the. That's the home, their their home their home base. Yeah, he he immediately has recognition with L, which I think right. is very significant. He, they right off the bat, he has this uh, great affection for her mm-hmm. and compassion for her, and she reciprocates that by protecting him. And there's a dispute though going on between Lucas and Dustin because they want to find L, or sorry, they want to find Will buyers but they've found l and they don't know what to make of her and they're they're not sure that it leads it's it potentially leads to a breakup of the party yeah, already there it strains the party this arrival of the the divine feminine and 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 on a kind of a simplistic level i mean we've all every one of us who's gotten married has at some <laughs> point said sorry guys i'm getting married 
That's the end of the party. (laughs) Yeah, the party's over. And and I don't mean that. The lights, the party's (laughs) over. They say that all good things must end. Right. And yeah, we still get together with our buddies at times, but it's not the same, right? Because our devotion and our loyalty lies somewhere else. Uh, A higher purpose, a higher realm, hopefully. And but these are kids, and they can see like what 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 do you mean? We, we got to find Will. Our party's getting split. Luckily, everything comes around, and they're able to just integrate her into the party. But it takes some doing. And her arrival is sort of the uh, the the arrival of the end of the innocence for these boys. They've lost Will. That's that's a big incident. And now L, and there's these things happening. And they're all related, and their lives are never the same after her arrival. Her arrival is the great awakening, the call to adventure. It's right. the, it's the hey, you're not who you think you are. You're a wizard, Harry. You're a wizard, Harry. <laughs> yeah, it's the time for great, uh, the great choosing. They could have abandoned her and maybe put off some of this a little bit, but you can see the whole town now. At the end of season four, the entire town is wrapped up in this. Now, some of them are going to deny it. And say, oh, it was an earthquake. A lot of people are leaving. Yeah, there's a scene yeah. where just every, you know, just the the one side of the road leaving town is just car after car after car loaded up. And, and who can blame them, right? Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to shortly thereafter, you see Mike's dad. <laughs> there's He's not going anywhere. He's, he's like looking l- around like, what's going he's on? He's laying in his recliner as if <laughs> nothing's going on. So... um but, uh, yeah, super fun series. If you haven't watched it and you've listened to this episode, you need to go watch, go watch all the series or all the seasons and then listen to this again, maybe. I think you want to you continue this next week? Yeah, I'm enjoying the discussion. Okay. I'm going to try to watch some more of the, the episodes or rewatch them so we can... Uh, I want to... I because there's there's a lot of we could. Well, get, what do you want to talk about? Well, we could get into the symbol, like the symbolism of shot composition, or or some of the lines that are spoken, or the the story. But I think we need to get into maybe some story. May, again, maybe not play by play because there's a lot of plays to go over. But maybe are we ma- trying to major, make this, Are we trying to make a production out of this because we're just totally flying by the seat of our pants? I mean, I mean, we we can't. I I think ultimately it, this this story, this Stranger Things, like you you've touched on is a depiction of the battle between good and evil. And I think it's significant that kids are involved. Kids, well, are, kids are often involved, or young, innocent people are involved in these types of stories. And sometimes they're aided by grizzled veterans. You know, Lord of the Rings is a great example. The hobbits are protected by seasoned warriors and wizards. Well, but I think it's no coincidence uh, that you have the three realms depicted. You have a cosmology here. You've got right. you've got sort of a heaven, you've got an earth and an under the earth. Now, what'll be interesting is to see where they go with all of this and is there a is there an, a a realm above? You know, that maybe is something that comes into play. I don't think they'll go there. A lot of times when people get killed off, they're they're sort of out of the picture. And so the way, the way I would look at it is that you have sort of your terrestrial world, which is Hawkins regular. Mm-hmm. You have sort of a, 
that astral dimension, which is sort of a spirit paradise, even though you find bad people there. And then you have um, the upside down, which is the underworld, which is where we live right now. Right. But that also has, you could also say that's spirit prison or 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 the evil the the evil spirits that are but, around this world. So they, that so I want to say the I want to say that the cosmology it's not really the the full cosmos. It's just this sphere. It's you've just, also got is it different than the the upside down? You've got that realm where Vecna kind of lives. It's all fiery and mountainous. And I thought that was the upside down. It seems like it's part of it, or even like an inner sanctum, because they go to that house. Because the upside down sort of parallels Hawkins, right? Mm-hmm. Things are the same. Like they they get they get to the upside down, and it's like, well, I know the way to this house because I know the way to it in my world. Well, that's right. Because you have not only well, yeah, you have uh, in the upside down they find Vecna's house, right? And it's intact. But in in the upside down other dimension, there's also Vecna's house not intact, right? And you've got that. It's like a deeper level of hell. Yeah, so maybe that's like the, an inner sanctum well, type. you know, this is why I would say this is kind of an echoey type of a thing because it's not clearly defined what what is where, like, um, say, Dante's mm-hmm. purgatory, where Dante starts at the very bottom of the earth and goes down into the earth. But it, if you if you look at these drawings of it, they'll show Jerusalem upside down on the bottom of the earth. Right. And he goes up into the center of the earth, and then on the other side of the earth, on top, right side up, is purgatory. And so, but you go through the levels of hell. There are different different levels, layers, areas, topo, topoi, uh, endroits, they're, they're, uh epochs, eons, spheres, whatever you want to call them. They're, they're these striations of, of uh, locales. Well, if the if you're listening, Duffer Brothers, and you're still kind of penciling out season, season five. five, Jordan Bruno here is available <laughs> <laughs> and could add some nice Definitely. cosmology and, and some because it, it'll be interesting to see if they zoom out right and what the what the significance of all of these events mean for not just Hawkins right right now the story is really like Hawkins 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 but that is but, the world I mean they had California and they have Russia yeah. And obviously, this type of a story would make huge news throughout the world. They did. I wonder if they're going to bring us back. They introduced some of the other numbers. Well, there's a there. There's also some other places to explore, which is like the allegorical or documentary significance of the MK Ultra stuff. Like, what is this? Is this a uh, an attempt to shed light on some of that stuff that happened in the '80s? Is it is it a discussion of the secret combination? It, it you know i've i've sort of focused my thoughts on the greater cosmic significance mm-hmm. of it but there there's a lot of other allegory to be explored other other possibilities and then there's just the 80s nostalgia yeah you know? they did they did such a good job of that great job of it yeah. 80s nostalgia yeah so uh, and there's a lot to discuss anyway Maybe we save that for another time, but this uh, initial discussion, I think, is good to get the juices flowing with the listeners. And if you've, if you have, um, seen it and you want to comment, I'm gonna I'm gonna post the title of this will be 
Stranger Things dash spoilers three exclamation points okay <laughs> on the website and then i'll put a note under that that says do not read any further if you don't want spoilers and then if you want to comment and spoil it or talk about whatever you want and post questions and comments and discussions for later definitely do that on the podcast page at mindvirus.show this will be episode 83 mm-hmm it's 7-Eleven today, by the way. Uh, if you yeah, want to, if you want to uh, get a free Slurpee, you'll be hearing this tomorrow. So too late. We kind of skipped over our normal uh, introduction, but yeah, it's uh, Monday, July 11th. It's okay. We can do the introduction at the end. 7-Eleven. I'm Bobby Flood. That's Jordan Bruno, and we are the Mind Virus Show. Yeah, find us on the web at mindvirus.show, and uh, feel free to comment. This will be a spoiler page. And I think, you know, there's a lot to discuss here. There's a lot we could talk. We could, we could be spending all day talking about the symbols, the ideas, the narrative. And I think at the end of the day, the feeling I get from the Duffer brothers is this is fun. They're doing this for fun. This is not. It, it is fun. This is not. This was not an, uh, an attempt to lay out a definitive map of the cosmos or a, or a definitive make a definitive commentary on cosmic reality. I th- but I right. think that it, it's a great hero's journey story with lots of heroes. Yeah, I was going to say, who is the hero? I mean, maybe it's Elle, but she gets a lot of help. Maybe it's Mike, but he gets a lot of help. And in season four, one thing I found interesting is that a lot of the movers and shakers were kind of helpless. Like you had the you had part of the group off on this wild goose chase in the van. Oh, they're in California. Right. Yeah, they went out to California for spring break. They end up in Salt Lake City. Yeah, which is funny. They they throw the Mormons in there funny little a few de- times. Funny depiction of LDS. Isn't there isn't there one time where somebody's at the door and they blame it on the Mormons? Uh, Max is at the door. Ma- in season two, Max Maxine, Mad Max has to go to or she's trying to she's trying to talk to Lucas and her brother doesn't want her seeing Lucas and she she tells her brother that it was the Mormon missionaries yeah that, something like that. that were at the door and she had to get rid of them and then you've got uh, Dustin's uh, Dustin's love interest long distance girlfriend is very it's never explicitly said but it's very obviously implied that she's LDS she's got the BYU flag on her room I think it's said isn't it you you're, if you're gonna go back and Maybe. watch. But you he, know, ta- the, he talks about how that he can't be with her because she's Mormon, I think. Or very religious or something. Yeah, and I, I think it was um, a funny depiction of this some Mormon this house, Yeah, the, this house full of children that are running amok. Just absolute no, chaos. No mother in sight. The rebellious older sister. No mother in sight for some reason. But, but the, the dad works at home. Yeah, and the girl's a little computer genius and, and helps them this is, along uh, the way. Oh, what's her name? Susie? Susie, I think. She's yeah. a genius. Uh, it's hilarious <laughs> when they sing the never-ending story song. The never-ending story. Turn around. <laughs> and then the, the other kids are making fun of him. Right. But, but, but yeah, she's, these... she's, she's also got a great uh, feminine, strong feminine, you know. Yeah. Feminine magus type of a role. She's, she's, she helps move the plot ahead. She 
all these she people, intervenes like she she, she i, I want to make a point here <laughs> she's critical to them being able to accomplish what they need in multiple right. at multiple points she knows stuff she gives them knowledge wis- a, she gives them wisdom she's a cipher type cracking little codes and little nuggets nothing huge but very important if that makes sense she helps locate them right. she helps uh them defeat uh or she helps them open a lock right she by helps, by knowing Planck's constant she changes their grades <laughs> yeah <laughs> so she's definitely a wisdom figure well and all these kids are going through you know they're coming of age they're going through a lot of changes and uh, for good or bad and you know and you have Will Will at the end of season 4 is tormented Will since his original encounter right he's tormented and you see that quite a bit in this last season where he's and maybe we I don't know it'll be interesting what they do with him to see what they do with him if he's going to become uh like does he develop some powers or does he become encompassed and maybe he maybe he's lost yeah, it looks like there's either a love triangle developing there, or maybe he has a, a same-sex af- affection or something. Do you? I don't know where that's going, but I, I would yeah, say there was some speculation about that. I would say just ignore that stuff. Uh, uh, Robin, who's a cute uh, addition to the team, she's the the daughter of Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman. I don't know if oh you knew really that. that makes sense now. They yeah, she looks that, a lot like they can see Uma that influence. Thurman. Yeah. But uh, she she's got a great character, but they make her a lesbian or right. same sex attracted to a girl, and and I don't know why they have. I guess this is just something that pe- they feel like they have to throw in. The mo- for, mod- modern influences are going to leak into the story. For, well, it's sort of like a woke. It's sort of like a for some reason. There's an expected set of things you have to do to please certain demographics nowadays. Right. And so they feel like they have to throw that in to please certain people as if, as if they, anyways, at least least I will give them credit for the fact that they, with regards to that, Robin, it's still something that Robin is, I can't say the word struggling because we'll get canceled, but Robin is figuring out, right? And there's... Right. I don't think that they will be able to have Robin fall for Steve because otherwise they would totally be canceled or castigated Yeah, they can't do it, it now. They can't do it now. Plus the Steve and Nancy movement is in motion now. They've set it up for Jonathan to... Because Jonathan's the one that's going to initiate He's sort of it. drawing farther away right, from Nancy. Right. He's... he's not going to go to the same school and anyway we're falling back into some analysis here yeah but look look, this might it might get a little weird but um i'm hoping that this is helpful to get your juices flowing and people for people that are listening to this that uh may not have had discussions with us about this type of analysis or thinking or uh religious understanding in the past there there is i want to say there is a an ancient way of looking at things, and we don't do that very often. And there is an allegorical or you know symbolic uh, understanding that transcends the literal stuff that we tend to talk about, and it it transcends some of the really basic symbols that that come up in say gospel doctrine or whatever. The, 
we just we don't allow ourselves to go places that right. are very interesting anymore in in our church discussions. But this is a very spiritual thing, a very uh, very much related to reality. And our lives are built by the narratives that we it, take into us. And so so I think it's really important. And w- one thing I wanted to add was just a little bit of a tip here as you're looking at things. You got to realize that that in some ways these stories are told in a dreamlike way. They they're not always sequential. They're they're non sequitur. They don't they don't always follow. And you have to pick up elements from different characters and different stories. But they all relate to you and your walk at some point in your cosmic journey. Your you you go through and you play the different parts just like. Uh, if you'll read that, the rest of that, all the world's a stage. I will, um, I will throw in the rest of the quote. I didn't, I didn't quote the whole thing, but it says his acts being seven ages, and then it talks about the the man going from being a uh, an infant to an old man, and he he plays many parts. One man in his time plays many parts, is what Shakespeare says. So, so when you look at this. You got to realize that 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 these uh, characteristics and accomplishments that that the that the characters obtain and go through and develop the those parts of the journey could be manifest in different characters, and this was done in the ancient world. You would have in, in ancient mythology. And in the ancient stories, you would have multiple characters for the same cosmic personality, like the great mother. She's personified by both Hathor and Sekhmet, and there are other goddesses that also personify her different characteristics. They have different functional roles, but they're still essentially the same cosmic person, our great heavenly mother. Uh, Hathor's the, the creator, and Sekhmet's the destroyer. I mean, we really haven't, we never talk about that. (laughs) I don't want to sugarcoat it. This is something we never talk about. But who, when the destruction happens, it's not just going to be the boys that are in on it. The mother is going to play a great role and, and perhaps is the great decider of which of her children get ultimately destroyed by fire. And so in in Egypt, you've got Sekhmet, who is uh, personifies that role of the same person. You have Horus, who's the heavenly version of Jesus Christ, and Osiris, who is the earthly version. In Christianity, we, we look at that a little bit differently. We never make the point that they're two separate personas, but you have Yahweh or Jehovah, Yahweh, I think, is the more correct pronunciation. And then you have Jesus Christ, uh, Yeshua HaMashiach, here on the earth. That's his earthly tabernacled persona. It's, mm-hmm. That's who he is. He's, he's, he's both. Um, in Lord of the Rings, I think you have three Christ types in uh, Aragorn, Gandalf, and Frodo. Frodo is the sacrificial role. He sacrifices, um, carries the burden. Uh, Gandalf is running around leading. He's the guide of the souls. He's he's the wizard. He's he's teaching. You could say that's an Enoch or a or a Hermes type of a character too. But he's clearly this the wizard with the staff and saves them on the fifth day or whatever. And uh, he has to descend into darkness and fight the Balrog. Anyway, so I think Gandalf is uh, 
is a type of Christ. And of course, Aragorn, the true king who returns and, and marries Arwen and um, comes to the White City. And when he comes to the White City, the tree starts to grow again and everything. So, so uh, Tolkien understood this, and he has that played out in, in multiple personas, and, and that's okay. In fact, it gets to be a really long story if you're going to just show one guy going through all the progressions. It's great when you can weave them in and have multiple people playing different facets of the story, and they all intertwine, and it gets really interesting, and you get fun, new, exciting narratives that still have the same archetypal meaning and and relevance and uh, can actually teach us something if we are willing to step back and look at it with new eyes and with more ancient eyes and, and see how these things might have been taught. So anyway, just some tips for how to maybe have a new perspective on right. on what you're seeing. Well, probably a good point to end. Okay. Let's be done. We've been wrapping this up for 20 minutes. <laughs> Such as we often do. All right. Well, um, fun talk today, we, Bobby. We I will, enjoyed it. Yeah, we'll continue this. Leave comments and spoilers and analysis, your own insight to onto Stranger Things. Mindvirus.show. Also, we're on all your favorite podcast aggregators. And We did earn a COVID-19 warning on Spotify for our, <laughs> our Mockingbird episode. That was yeah, 81. That was odd. If you, yeah, it's the only episode, which is funny because we've definitely talked about coronavirus yeah. plenty, but if you happen to watch episode 81 or listen to it, sorry, you can't watch it, um, warning, you may want to check the official narrative. Right. I don't even remember what we said in that one that might have triggered that or, but. Yeah, it's kind of odd. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. And we will continue to talk about Stranger Things. And also we will talk about the TV show, Stranger Things. (laughs) All right. Let's do it. Thanks, everybody. Okay, have a great week.